0: This podcast is made possible by Workiva and U.S. Bank.
1: Hello, this is Tom O'Flynn, CFO of E.S., and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast.
0: This is episode number 401.
1: What I've learned over time is that now we're in a world where it's all about data. As long as you can... uh, have the insatiable curiosity to learn uh, some domain expertise in other industries, that's amazing how you can generalize a lot of the skills that worked in one industry and translate it to another industry. Whether it's uh, Zeta Global, what I'm currently working on, where we have about 1400 employees, or or whether it's RX Advance, uh, where we're now in the process of Uh, recruiting about 2,000 employees over the next 24 to 30 months. Um, These are businesses that are scaling. And what do they all have in common? Uh, They're all uh, business architectures based on platforms. They're all about data. They're all about smart data.
0: From middle market media. This is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Jack Sweeney, on today's show, we welcome back John Scully, former CEO of Apple Computer and serial entrepreneur. As listeners to this podcast know well, since his years at Apple, John Scully has opened an ambitious new career chapter, advising and investing in fast-growth companies. And according to Scully, how businesses are built is now swiftly changing. Traditional business architecture is being discarded. The C-suite is being re-engineered, and the boardroom is under renovation. John Scully explains after these words from our sponsor. Workiva transforms the way people work through connected reporting and compliance. The facts are, a majority of senior accounting and finance professionals say their financial reporting involves a huge amount of manual work and is inherently error-prone, leading to risk. Risk That's intensified by new business complexities and the changing business climate. Link data elements, numbers, narrative, and calculations together everywhere you use them. When you change data at the source, it's changed at the destination. Gaining trust in your data and processes is that simple. Join over 3,500 customers who enjoy the benefits of using Workiva by connecting their organizations from record to report. Visit workiva.com slash CFO. Hello. When we last spoke with John Scully, it was shortly after he published Moonshot, Game Changing Strategies to Build Billion Dollar Businesses. If our listeners haven't yet read the book, we'd encourage them to do so. It really offers insight into John Scully's many professional lives and opportunities inside uh, large corporates like Pepsi and Apple, but also his prolific role as an advisor, mentor, and board member to middle market businesses. It's clear the uh, entrepreneurial itch that may have first transported him to Apple, which at the time was really only a middle market firm, is alive and well, and drawing his attention to new opportunities today. John, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Nice to be back. Great to have you. Let's begin with those opportunities, and this is a rather broad question, and I know you're involved with so many companies today, but what is the opportunity, and that's a big part of why we were looking forward to uh, connecting again with you, and not just talking about specific offerings or market uh, opportunities, but how businesses are being built differently and how um, how companies grow differently today. And this is uh, uh, something I think you, you touched on, in, in, certainly in Moonshot. And I wanted to ask how C-suite members and businesses can create opportunities for their existing businesses around these types of changes?
1: Well, when I wrote Moonshot now about three years ago, the basic thesis was that the entire way in which uh, business leaders would want to look at opportunities of how you build successful companies was going to radically change from anything that we'd seen at scale in the past. And now it's uh, long enough since I wrote that book to actually go back and say, well, was it accurate or not in its predictions? And the answer is, uh, if, if, if anything, I underestimated how big the opportunity was and how rapidly it was going to occur. Uh, the thesis, Jack, was that we are moving into exponential time. You know, all of us uh, have grown up in linear time. We know, you know months, weeks, days. Uh, we're accustomed to that in our daily lives. Uh, but what we're discovering now in exponential time, uh, which is being driven by the exponential growth of disruptive technologies, this is cloud computing, it's artificial intelligence, it's drones, it's robotics. Uh, it's a whole number of uh, transformative technologies that are growing at an exponential rate. And so what used to take six years now takes six months. And for business leaders, to learn how do they uh, uh, adapt uh, their organizations to a world in which if they don't make those changes, they're going to discover a competitor will. And one way or the other, it's going to touch their lives.
0: John, we touched on this briefly with you last time. But as businesses change how they're being built, what changes are happening at the board level? What does the board... Uh, need to represent today? Who are the skills and who are the people? And let me just ask the broader question. Does the board need to change? I, I, would, I would
1: tell uh, anybody who is uh, thinking about uh, questions like that to imagine, you know, a hundred years ago uh, if you were asking the same question and we were just in the uh, rollout of uh, electricity being distributed across the nation. Uh, we were just starting to see factory automation uh, start to uh, appear in industry after industry. Uh, we were seeing the automobile uh, and the build out of, of, of road infrastructure just beginning to enable us to go from uh, not just town to town, but actually you know, across the state and even connecting states and eventually connecting the nation. So imagine if you were uh, thinking about that exact same question 100 years ago uh, in the context of what we now know uh, how the 20th century ended up. Well, we're going through a transformation business that is even bigger and it's happening right now and it's going to shape the rest of the 21st century. And what is driving it is the adoption of technology into everything that a business has to consider, even if it's not a technology business per se, but even if it's not uh, producing uh, technical products or doesn't actually employ engineering talent, things of that nature. What's going to become so fundamental, Jack, is that the kinds of decisions that a board needs to make, a CEO and a CEO's uh, management team needing to make, are going to require skills that, for the most part, haven't been uh, around even as recently as five or ten years ago. So how do you think about uh, putting together a board of directors, let's say, who can even comprehend, based on their own experiences, the types of issues that management teams are going to have to deal with on a day-in and day-out basis? The roles of people, for example, a chief financial officer in the past – Act was someone who was uh, accountable for making sure that regulations were followed, that accounting rules were uh, effectively deployed throughout the organization, that there was a discipline of accountability. And yet the kinds of issues that CFOs are going to be dealing with now are going to be looking at entirely new constructs of business models, entirely different ways in which a company will make money you know, in its particular industry. But just think of the uh, automobile industry. Uh, if you go back 10 years ago, uh, the leaders of uh, General Motors and Ford and uh, other big automobile companies you know, assumed that they made their profits by building uh, motor vehicles. And yet today, if you sat in the boardrooms of any of the, those automotive companies anywhere in the world, uh, they are focused on uh, are they in the product business or are they in the service business? You know, Are they going to be competing with Uber or are they going to be competing with self-driving cars or entirely new manufacturers who were never in the auto industry even a decade ago like Tesla? So this is just an example in one industry, but we could go through industry after industry after industry that's going to be faced with those types of problems. And for the CFO, the chief financial officer, they not only are responsible for exactly the same things they were in the past, not accountability and discipline, but they're now going to have to play a strategic role in terms of advising the CEO and other executive team members, advising the board of directors uh, on things like, so exactly what is the pro forma of our business model? You know, How does that change the way in which we do business? Uh, So it's a very, very exciting time for anybody who wants to be part of disruptive transformation. And it's a challenging time for anybody who isn't prepared to learn the new rules of the game.
0: John, I've noticed, and I don't know if this is – I'm curious what your your thoughts on this might be. And I think some of your companies that you've been involved with over time and have grown also have the role of the uh, the chief revenue officer. I've seen that become a – for high-growth firms, it appears to be a role that uh, very often they don't have a CFO, but they might have a a chief revenue officer. Might this be an example of some of what you're uh, highlighting? Well, we're
1: starting to see a whole bunch of new titles we never saw before you know, on the uh, executive-level team, and uh, you know, Chief Revenue Officer is, is one of those titles. Uh, the reality is that uh, some businesses are disruptive and growing at incredibly rapid rates, and they make no profit. Um, Uber's never made a profit. You know, it loses um, almost a billion dollars a quarter, uh, and there are other examples in the social media world uh, where companies have huge market cap valuations, uh, some private, some public, and they don't make any money. Uh, Obviously, they expect someday to make money, but even today many of the uh, leaders inside of those organizations cannot tell you exactly how that money is going to be made, how they're going to recognize revenue. So uh, I've been involved with – since I left Apple, uh, in the telecommunications industry, in the financial services industry, in the healthcare industry. And one of the biggest challenges as a board member, uh, particularly if you're sitting on on the audit committee, is dealing with revenue recognition. How do you record the revenue so that it follows the uh, generally accepted accounting principles, GAAP, and at the same time, uh, how do you implement it in in a way that reflects the way the competitors may be trying to completely change the um, business model where they um, give some things away for free and they're willing to lose things, money on other things, and their hope is that eventually by uh, owning a relationship with the customer that they'll find a way to make a profit.
0: It's clear that uh, a lot's happening quickly right now, so sometimes it's difficult to, uh, well, see the forest from the trees, but is there other evidence already visible about how the C-suite is uh, is changing? Uh, yes,
1: absolutely. And, and I would bring two things to mind. First of all, there is a uh, general momentum in every industry to shift the power uh, to the customer. So uh, one of the major theses in my book, Moonshot, was that there's this power shift that's going on that um, – people pay more attention to the uh, feedback from other customers than they do from the marketing campaigns of these companies that are creating new products and services. And so the empowerment of customers, and it doesn't make any difference whether we're talking about product businesses, service businesses, uh, customers are being empowered because the amount of data that is available in terms of, How do customers behave? How do they think about products and services they're already buying? Uh, The types of uh, enablement that uh, organizations now have to be able to pinpoint with a lot of accuracy uh, to exactly the the individuals who are most likely to be interested in what that particular company is trying to market. So the world of marketing is dramatically changing. It's all data-driven. The world of customer uh, value is shifting the metrics of uh, how you measure success to customer metrics. Another theme which I discussed in my book, Moonshot, uh, used to be that the metrics were all uh, producer centric metrics, you know, return on assets employed, return on investment, uh, things of that nature. Well, now the key metrics tend to be customer metrics. How much is the cost of, to acquire a customer? What is the cost to. Uh, be able to monetize a customer? How do you build a relationship with a customer that sustains the loyalty of that customer? What's the lifetime value of a customer? Uh, what is the churn rate of a customer? Words, how often do the customers turn over? Uh, how many customers uh, never complete a transaction but only get part way through? Particularly important in online uh, transactions. So we're getting a whole new uh, uh, collection of. Uh, data points, uh, all customer-centric, that we never had before. So then you have to say, well, who in the uh, C-suite is going to be responsible for that and whose job changes as a result of this uh, big trend, industry after industry, towards empowering the customers with more and more uh, information, more and more control over the purchase. The second thing I would point out, if we were sitting here 100 years ago uh, trying to figure out what the C-suite would look like, uh, and electricity is just starting, you know, automobiles are now growing in popularity and becoming at price points where consumers could afford them. Remember Henry Ford said, I want a price the uh, cars coming off my mass production line at a price that the employees building the car could actually afford to buy one. So, uh, we have similar types of issues today, but obviously with a very different set of criteria from a technology standpoint. The biggest thing that I see going on that is going to shape the types of questions you're asking is what I call the business architecture of the enterprise. The business architecture of the enterprise in the 20th century uh, captured the efficiencies of mass production. Efficiencies of mass distribution, efficiencies of mass marketing and communications. We're now, however, in an entirely different business architecture. And the business architecture today can be described with one word, platforms. And platforms are uh, data-driven analytical machines. The machines, in this case, are cloud computing uh, technology, that are able to take massive amounts of data individualized on each individual customer and be able to process that data and to, in some cases, reduce the cost of doing business and, in other cases, um, sharpening the accuracy of being able to communicate individually with each customer and being able to run businesses with a business architecture that is, platform-based. The traditional organization is has been set up with functional tasks. So you might have a manufacturing department if you're a product company. You might have a marketing department, a sales department, a financial organization, an IT organization. Those uh, structures are becoming more and more outdated as time goes on. And today, the structures are all about How do you build a business architecture for the enterprise that is a platform that horizontally cross-cuts every one of those traditional vertical siloed functions and enables the efficient use of data, largely customer-centric data, uh, that will let you completely change the business models of how work gets done, the cost of of, uh, managing that work, and the ways you make a profit? And so I'd say for the C-suite, if you don't have people in that C-suite who have the curiosity and, in some cases, the skills to understand not how to build the technology, not everyone has to be a a computer scientist, but you have to have people who can become comfortable with using the innovation that's coming out of technology. They don't necessarily have to be the ones who are uh, designing technology or writing the code.
0: John, in light of uh, the experience you have had as a board member and, of course, being in board members for both uh, large corporates as well as uh, fast growth companies, middle market companies, I want to give you a, a hypothetical. A CFO has recently been hired. And while he or she has met the board members, they have not ever presented before the board, and they're now expected to do so at the next board meeting. As a board member, and let's just say this, this company's middle market, uh, perhaps between 200 million and 500 million in annual sales. I'm not sure what industry you, you can choose it. But as a board member of this company, what is it? What is the role you want that CFO to play at the meeting? What is the insight or, or input that you want from that CFO?
1: I think one of the important responsibilities of a CFO in the context of a world where there's so many moving parts um, and some things that seem to be um, you know, very clear as to how businesses um, were expected to be run even four or five years ago are no longer um, probably even going to be the same. The role of the CFO, I would call it the explainer. The CFO has to be the person who explains the business. Traditionally, the CFO explained the business uh, through the uh, accounting reports and the accountability of goal set performance uh, that were the outcomes of the goals and the efforts that were made and and the returns on the investment of those activities. Uh, But the reality is the CFO still has to do all of those things. It didn't go away. They still have those responsibilities. Uh, So they aren't replacing those old things. It's that they're adding to their list of accountabilities. And one of the things they have to add uh, to their accountability in more and more organizations is they have to be able to explain uh, what is happening with how customers think about the products or services from that company. And this means evidence-based data. So more and more, the role of the CFO is to be able to explain using data. Uh, this is the evidence of uh, things that we never could see at a granular level uh, before. And this has all happened you know, in less than a decade. They have to be able to explain the business uh, beyond the traditional uh, accounting uh uh, metrics that CFOs have spent most of their careers understanding. So I'd say they have to become the great explainer. And for the CEO, uh, that means they have to be able to uh, give the CEO uh, clarity in terms of uh, what do we know about the customer, about the marketplace, uh, about the changes that are going on. And they have to be able to explain using data uh more and more pro formas, meaning models of if you take these sets of assumptions, here's what the implications are going out, you know, next year, year after, year after. And the role of the CFO as explainer uh, is incredibly important. Uh, You see CFOs are uh, getting paid a lot more money than they were even a few years ago because uh, being the explainer uh, is a – incredibly important responsibility, and you've got different stakeholders. Um, Board members um, typically have been men who are retired CEOs or retired CFOs from other corporations. Um, Well, that's not quite as informed a board as you may need in this era because we're dealing in in a world where the experiences are quite different in running a company today than they were when many of the traditional board members were running their companies. And so there's a great uh, move, I think, towards getting people with broader experiences, more and more women are being recruited to boards, which makes sense because as you move to a uh, customer-focused industry, uh, we're in a consumer economy. 70% of our GDP comes from consumer spend. A lot of that consumer spend is women. So getting women on boards Um, is important, uh, not as token uh, women on the board, but getting women on on boards who actually have some some relevant experience that can be valuable in the kinds of decisions that that, uh, boards are called on to make, which often are the business is going to be different in the future than it's been in the past. It also means getting uh, people on the board who uh, may come from different industries, uh, which are further along in the use of uh, data evidence, uh, accountability, and uh, there are some industries that are in early adopters. So, f- for example, uh, if you look at the high-tech industry, uh, it's not surprising that the high-tech industry uh, has been using uh, data evidence uh, to make decisions for a long time. Uh, I'm in the healthcare industry t- today. Uh, the healthcare industry has has not been an early adopter of many of these new um Platform-based technologies, and so uh, getting people on boards in healthcare companies who have experience in uh, e-commerce or in in um, financial services or in um, telecommunications—you know, industries that have been early adopters of uh, new platform technology—can be very valuable. Again, the CFO is going to have to be the explainer. The CFO has to be the the person who translates. So here's how we looked at our business to here's how we need to look at our business.
0: The example you gave, you did not have the CFO enter the boardroom and talk about money. Maybe maybe the money details were on a PowerPoint deck. Actually, no, I don't think you, you – you didn't mention a PowerPoint deck. Instead, they go in and they explain uh, something about the customer experience, whether it's a measurement of some kind. Uh, am, I, am I right? Is that part of what you're suggesting is that they're – they're tackling, you know, pointing a new direction for that role as well. It would seem to me. Well, I, I was, yeah, I was around in, in the 1980s
1: uh, when when PowerPoint was created, and uh, actually met with the founder of uh, PowerPoint. and Apple was one of the first investors in PowerPoint when it was a it was a new company, and then we sold it to Microsoft. And we've all seen what's happened with PowerPoint. That for uh, several decades to follow. Uh, every executive meeting, every board meeting, uh, people were making PowerPoint presentations. Well, I can tell you that in many of the most successful innovative companies, they ban PowerPoint. They don't want PowerPoint slides. Uh, they want boards to uh, have a, a few uh, detailed uh, exhibits that explain the um, you know, uh, key Uh, the KPI, the key performance indicators. Uh, But for the most part, they expect uh, management to have discussions with the board, explaining what the issues are, putting the issues into context, giving a a verbal narrative as to how they interpret uh, the situation, and then giving pro forma examples of here are the implications if these things happen and looking at different scenarios. So more and more, uh, the level of discussion at board meetings has shifted from slide after slide after slide uh, to discussions, narratives uh, of, so here's how we assess the situation, here's the evidence that backs it up, here's the um, models that uh, we're projecting as to what the implications could be. And so uh, PowerPoint slides are becoming less relevant Uh Clarity in terms of the narrative explanation is becoming more important. But one of the great quotes I love uh, comes from Albert Einstein. And he uh, said, you don't really understand something well until you can explain it in a simple way. And that's such a great insight because there is a tendency, and you see this with lawyers. They always want to explain things in a complicated way. And for you know, most non-lawyers like me, you know, we're sitting there struggling to figure out. So, what did they really say? Uh, there's a great attention, I think, with management teams today, with CEOs who say, "Hey, you know, the world's changing too quickly. Everything is moving uh, at such a rapid pace. We we got to get past the complexity of how we talk about things, how we present information." And we've got to do it with clarity, and we've got to do it in a simple way. Well, again, going back to the CFO, um, the CFO, if the CFO can't understand things clearly and explain them in a simple way, uh, they aren't going to be performing the job of CFO as people are going to expect in the best corporations. And boards are going to be uh, saying, hey, yeah, you can't expect me to come to a board meeting and understand your business with all of the changes that are uh, going on and the possible uh, implications of things that may be different in the future that uh, I'll never be as knowledgeable as the management team is on, on every detail. So you've got to explain to me as a board member, you know, an independent uh, person from management, you know, why is what you're telling me important? How do you know that you're explaining it to me in a way that is simple enough that I can fully grasp not only what it is, but grasp what are the implications of it. And CFO is more and more going to be the person responsible for doing that.
0: Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. We're about to ask John Scully about the companies he's investing in and advising today. Who are they? What are they? After these words from our sponsor. You want smart year by the Ethisphere Institute to learn more visit uspayment.com slash middle market I want to ask you about some of the companies you've been involved with I know uh, uh, moonshot uh, covers some of them but I, I've also uh, other companies that have made headlines recently are is rx advance which is uh, disrupting the uh, the pharmacy benefit management space uh, can, can you share some of the milestones that some of the other companies you've been involved with have uh, achieved in last so many years? Sure. This is the uh, most interesting company I've worked
1: with since I was at Apple. Uh, in fact, it's so interesting that not only did I invest in the company uh, several times uh, and agree to become the chairman of the board, but more importantly, I actually joined the management team as the chief marketing officer. Uh, that's the first time I've done that since I left Apple. So that says, I think, something just, just in that, that I would you know, go back and take a management job. Back in the C-suite. The reason is that uh, it's the perfect example of a business architecture change in the largest industry in America, the $3.5 trillion healthcare industry, which has been a laggard uh, in terms of adopting cloud platform technologies. And in the case of RxAdvance, uh, the company was started in 2013, uh, we released our first commercial for revenue product in January of 2016. And this year in 2018, uh, we will do $10 billion of contracted revenue. Now that turns into a gap revenue uh, of well over $10 billion by um, the end of 2019. So. We're talking about uh, a growth curve in revenue that is really there's no comparison. I mean, I don't know of any other company that's gone from zero to uh, uh, over ten billion dollars in in just a few years. And the reality is, even with that type of uh, rapid scaling, and it's all platform based, is completely disruptive in what it does for uh, taking billions of dollars of cost out of the whole area of prescription drug management and the whole ecosystem of prescription drugs between the pharmaceutical companies, the health plans, the providers, you know, the hospital systems, the physicians, and the pharmacies, literally takes billions and billions of dollars of cost out. But it entirely changes the way in which the customer, in this case, the patient, can be served. 86% of the cost of health care in the United States is chronic care patients. 5% of the population in the U.S. accounts for 50% of that $3.5 trillion. These are all chronically ill people. There's no way you can solve the unsustainability of today's health system unless you're able to change the way that we deliver health care to the chronic care patient. And that's what RX Advance does, in what's called the RX ecosystem, the prescription drug area.
0: And who owns the firm today?
1: Uh, well, it's um, a, a private firm. Uh, the founder, Ravi Aita, who is a brilliant serial entrepreneur, said that he didn't want to take any institutional money, so he asked, um, you know, me, and, and I brought in some other uh, high net worth individuals. And uh, we totally financed it without bringing in any institutional capital. Uh, So we are at uh, essentially a break-even today. Uh, We don't need any institutional capital. And we sold about 20% of the company earlier in 2018, March of 2018, to uh, Centene, which is a $60 billion uh, public company health plan. And we're working with them on not only uh, enabling – them with a modern cloud-based uh, pharmacy benefit management uh, platform, but we're also working together with them on another, uh, a number of other uh, very exciting initiatives in innovation for how do you manage uh, healthcare more efficiently as we move out through this decade.
0: Now, another company you're involved with is known as Zeta, and it du- it's dubbed a, an intelligent marketing platform or person-based Marketing. What what exactly is this offering? Well, um, like RX Advance,
1: it's a uh, remember I wrote my book about how do you build billion dollar companies. Well, uh, starts with building billion dollar valuation companies. In the case of RX Advance, we're both a billion dollar valuation uh, and growing, but we're also a billion dollar revenue. In the case of uh, Zeta Global, is a company I co-founded ten years ago. Uh, with uh, one of my close friends, Davis Steinberg. He's also the CEO of the company. And we are, uh, I believe, the largest independent marketing cloud company that does personalized marketing. Uh, we have about 750 million profile names. Uh, we work with some of the largest uh, uh, public companies uh, in the United States. We're also in Europe as well. Um, we're in Um, telecommunications, we're in financial services, we're in insurance, uh, we're in consumer uh, packaged goods, all different uh, major industry sectors, and we're enabling uh, these client companies of ours to have great precision using our artificial uh, um, intelligence-powered marketing campaigns. And uh, that's another example of the power of a uh, cloud
0: platform architecture. John, I know you're involved in, in many different companies, and I don't want to miss uh, some of the more intriguing ones, so I'm hoping you might uh, identify one or two for us uh, that you're, you know, has captured your imagination lately, and you you have this great way of uh, explaining some pretty complex opportunities. What what, uh, what What's top of mind?
1: Another company which uh, I'm involved with, uh, we did a spin-out uh, early... Um, I guess was really done last year uh, in 2017 from Cellgene, and the spin-out is called now Cellularity. And we took Cellgene's um, stem cell business that's uh, based on what's called the placenta blood cord. This is the umbilical cord when the, the baby is born. Uh, and we harvest uh, the stem cells from that, and we transform them, you know, into various cellular therapies. So right now uh, we're working in oncology with what's called uh, CAR-T uh, killer cells uh, to take multiple myeloma and lymphoma and be able to use our generic uh, antigen receptors, the uh, CAR-T uh, uh, cells that we convert from the placenta blood cord stem cells, to be able to have breakthrough precision medicine therapies. Uh, We raised, uh, in this case, we did bring in institutional money. We brought in $250 million uh, of investor money in the first round of the spin-out. And, um, you know, it's one of the hottest areas uh, in um, biotech today. And I'm, I'm one of the founding board members of that company.
0: Yeah, you don't seem to be married to any one industry. Is that uh, fair to say, or uh, or no? You have uh, uh, are there certain industries which are, you're planting a flag?
1: Well, that's a really interesting uh, question because it, it used to be that you would have a career in an industry. So when I joined Pepsi, I kind of thought my career was going to be in consumer packaged goods, and maybe I could move from um, you know one type of consumer packaged good to another. But I you know, never contemplated you know, back in the 70s that I was going to be doing anything in some entirely different industry. And then when I went to Apple, uh, I discovered I was going into uh, an industry that was actually creating the industries. It wasn't how do you compete with the existing incumbents, but how do you actually go out and create entirely new industries as, as uh, Apple and you know, Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates did with uh, personal computers and software. Well, what I've learned over time is that now we're in a world where it's all about data. And as long as you can uh, have the insatiable curiosity to learn uh, some domain expertise in other industries, that's amazing how you can generalize a lot of the skills that work in one industry and translate it to another industry. So, uh, I, after Apple, I went into telecommunications and was part of the founding team of a company called Metro PCS, which we built to a $9 billion company that we sold to T-Mobile. I was uh, on the founding team of a company called Intralinks, which was the first B2B uh, platform services that we took public on the New York Stock Exchange uh, and it was at over a billion dollar valuation. And I was, uh, you know, Involved at the founding uh, of a company called Rally Health, that we eventually sold to United Healthcare, um, and that is a billion-dollar revenue company today with over a thousand employees. So whether it's uh, Zeta Global, what I'm currently working on, where we have about 1,400 employees, uh, or whether it's RX Advance, uh, where we're now in the process of uh, recruiting about 2,000 employees over the next you know, 24 to you know, 30 months. Uh, These are businesses that are scaling, and what do they all have in common? Uh, They're all uh, business architectures based on platforms. They're all about data. They're all about smart data. Now, my background uh, is in consumer marketing. It's in high technology. It's also in mathematics and data science. Uh, So these skills are able to be generalized and and, uh, uh, transferred into industries where in the past I would think I had no relevant uh, competence you know, like biotech. I mean, what do I know about biotech? I, I'm, I'm not a medically trained uh, individual. On the other hand, uh, I've been asked to get involved in, in companies like Cellularity uh, because I come at it from my experience in high tech, uh, my experience in artificial intelligence and, um, you know, large platform systems. So I, um, we can generalize and find ourselves moving from industry to industry. something that wasn't uh,
0: happening. I wanted to ago. just uh, circle back uh, to boards with you for a moment and, and understand better how, when companies scale and grow, how the board changes as well, how sometimes it needs to be uh, reformulated and, and you add people and, uh, so a $100 million company, the board might look very different than when it's a $500 million company. And uh, at different thresholds, that board needs to be modified. Is this uh, the way you might look at the world, or uh, you know how would you describe what I'm getting at?
1: There's an old saying in Silicon Valley, what got us here won't get us there. And it's because many of these... Uh, companies that we take for granted today didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago. The industry didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago. And so uh, what we're talking about is uh, companies that require uh, individuals on the team to, in some cases, show the proof of concept of what's possible. Uh, That's at the beginning of a new company. And then, some people, but not everybody, have the ability to adapt as you have to go from what got us to the point where we knew it would be big and successful, but we didn't have the experience of the skills to be able to manage it through the expansion stage. Uh, some people, like a Bill Gates, have been able to do that you know, with great ease. Other people can't make that transition, uh, as you've seen with Uber. Uh, so my sense is that... Uh, it's easier to look at uh, industries that are brand new industries versus traditional companies that are trying to adapt to be able to fit in to a very different world. And that look at I, IBM struggling. Look at GE struggling. Um, you know these giant companies that have had you know kind of missteps uh, haven't been able to see the uh, growth that uh, newer companies have jumped into the same markets and been able to do a lot more successfully. Uh, occasionally you see a, an established company that's already big that's been able to make the adjustment. Uh, General Motors is you know, one of the, the uh, best current examples of a company that uh, went through bankruptcy uh, that was looked at as a stodgy, very hierarchical, bureaucratic company. And today it's looked at as a a company that is really showing uh, talent at being able to adapt and and compete with some of the most innovative uh, new companies like uh, Tesla and doing very well. So uh, trying to take an old, established company and change it, in my experience, is a lot harder than trying to build a new company where you can start uh, Greenfield, you know, start with Uh, You know, no uh, legacy of uh, things you have to change, but you can actually focus on what are the things we have to do to be successful with the new model as opposed to how do we change the culture. It's always about culture. How do we fix an old culture versus how do we, uh, when we get a young company with a good culture, how do we keep that good culture as the company scales? Most of the time uh, that I spend mentoring. Uh, CEOs is what founders of new companies, and it's about the culture. Uh, how do we uh, get the right culture uh, as early as possible? How do we keep that culture as we're scaling the businesses rapidly, going from you know, tens of millions of revenue to hundreds of millions of revenue to billions of dollars of revenue? You know, adding you know, lots of people. How do we uh, preserve the culture uh, as these companies grow? It's much harder in my opinion and I'm not really working on this harder problem of how do you take an old company like a GE or an IBM and fix it change the culture um, that's you know, not not something I'm I personally
0: working on John I, I've thrown a, a few extra questions at you I uh, thank you for indulging us here uh, and I have to say before we go permit me to say once again the book is Moonshot Game Changing Strategies to Build billion-dollar businesses. The author, of course, is serial board member, entrepreneur, John Scully, former CEO of PepsiCola and Apple. John, thank you for joining us. It's a, it's
1: a pleasure, John. Thank you for asking me.